The criminal law is essential to our democracy. Uh, the criminal justice system is an essential part of our civilized society. And we need young barristers to develop skills and to become senior barristers and then judges. I'm Beatrice Collier and I'm Georgina Wolfe and this is the Pupilage Podcast brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. Sorry, very gloomy. No, 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 no. This, I mean, this is this is the reality, and I think it's really important that students who are thinking about a criminal practice understand what they are looking at, because I think it's really easy just to to watch the television and to see the exciting moments in court and the glamorous cross examination, and not to realise how bad things are. Since we both started our legal training, there has been a major discussion about the problems facing the criminal bar. Neither of us practice crime. We are lucky enough not to be affected by these problems, but we wanted to understand them better. It can be very difficult for students to get a real sense of the issues. If a barrister tells you that you won't earn any money doing crime, what does that really mean? Does it mean you won't be able to buy a second house in the Cotswolds? Or does it mean you can't afford to pay your rent or worse? So in today's episode, we wanted to explore this further and find out what is really going on at the coalface. It turned out to be more difficult than we had anticipated. Some of the junior barristers we approached felt unable to go on the record. One told us that they would feel uncomfortable talking about the reality of life working for £75 to do a trial, which might never actually be paid by the solicitors, and which equated to losing about £400 per month once rent, tax and expenses had been deducted. We were told that there is a feeling that no one can complain without running the risk of appearing ungrateful to work in this incredibly prestigious and competitive career. One junior barrister told us the present and future of the criminal bar seemed bleak, saying, most pupils that I speak to are fearful, poor, and many are considering leaving crime already. From the bottom sets to the top chambers, barristers under 10 years call are struggling. Those who aren't struggling always have financial assistance, whether that's family wealth or well-paid partner, although they will rarely admit this in public. This skews the debate. Those who don't have money are silenced by the juniors who tell pupils... Don't complain. These same juniors will often have had their rent paid by parents or will still be living at home. There's little support from senior staff to chase overdue fees. It is perceived as better to keep solicitors on side by giving them junior freebies. This cannon fodder approach to junior welfare and finances will be the ruin of the bar. This is shameful. Worse, it's humiliating. And that is the reason this problem persists. No one speaks out about these issues. Many are too embarrassed to do so. We've been asked by more than one criminal practitioner to give a realistic view of the criminal bar. That is not easy. Everyone's experience is different, and barristers from one set are likely to give radically different accounts from those in other chambers. So in today's episode, we're speaking to some criminal practitioners about the past, why the criminal bar is in the position that it is, the present, what is the reality, and the future, is there a glimmer of hope? And because the criminal bar undoubtedly offers one of the most exciting and fascinating career choices you can make, we end on a note of hope with Sir Brian Leveson looking back over his years in practice. Monica Stevenson was called to the bar in 2004 and has a busy criminal practice at 25 Bedford Row. In fact, she's come to us from Southwark Crown Court this morning. Monica, big welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Thank you for having me. 
I've given just the briefest of introductions to your practice. So uh, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit more about what it is that you do at the Criminal Bar? So I came to, was called to the bar in 2004. Um, This is the 15th year being a criminal barrister. I did my pupillage at 25 Bedford Row, which is where I'm still based. Um, And it's a chambers which does exclusively criminal defence work. So in all the years that I've practised... I've been a defence advocate. I do a wide range of now quite serious and complex cases, anything ranging from paper-heavy fraud cases through to serious sexual offences. And yeah, I'm still enjoying the job after all these years, but I've seen a lot of change, obviously, since I first began. Tell us about some of the most important changes then that you have seen over the last 15 years. I think speaking... In terms of where we are now, I would say morale at the criminal bar is at an all-time low. There has always been um, room for improvement, that there will always be complaints about the level of remuneration, uh, the stress of the job. But I really do think we're at quite a unique point in the culture of the criminal bar in terms of general job satisfaction and perhaps more importantly a sense of whether or not the value of the work we do is actually sufficiently recognised and acknowledged by the government of the day. We, I mean, we have been pretty horrified in putting this episode together by how extraordinarily badly paid the criminal bar is and not only how that affects you and your lifestyles but how incredibly depressing and demoralising it is to earn such small amounts of money very often. And, and you, are, you obviously, you're now at a more senior level. Hopefully things are, are better and, and particularly specialising in defence work can perhaps isolate you from some of the, the challenges. Yeah. But do you see that with the juniors coming through? I do, um, because when you're at the very start of your career, you're dealing with the challenge of it all being new every day is a new milestone. There there is a lot of stress that just comes by virtue of having to acclimatise to a job that has a lot of uncertainty, a lot of pressure. To do that after years of working hard at Bar School University, to to take on that challenge but still be struggling financially um, is obviously very difficult for some people to, to deal with, particularly when they'll be looking at friends in other lines of work who perhaps have more in the way of a work-life balance, who clock off at five or six, who don't have to work in the evening or at the weekends, who are earning um, far better than them in the early years. So you can see why juniors in particular would feel demoralised. And how has it got this bad with, with fees? I mean, if you, if you ask that question of any barrister, you'll probably get um, a number of different answers. One of the real problems, I think, has just been that the difficulty um, in being able to engage the public in this issue because the criminal justice system belongs to all of us. We all have a vested interest in the system working well because we could be accused of a crime, we could be the victim of a crime. But there isn't always, I think, the public support or sympathy for our position, which allows there to be a lot of scaremongering, a lot of false reporting in some instances about what we do actually earn in the media. Obviously, if we had more in the way of a high profile for for our complaints, that might create more of an incentive for the government to, to, to take action to respond. My view is that the government has been able to exploit to some degree the fact that 
Um, we don't always have the public sympathy um, to, to, to give strength to, to our complaints and for them to be looked into. Yes, I mean, the headlines are always fat cat lawyers rather than horribly underpaid junior barristers. Yeah. And I suppose barristers just simply don't attract the same levels of sympathy as junior doctors. No, um, because everybody can see a time realistically when they may need the services or support of a hospital. People don't always have the imagination to see that as regards the criminal justice system. So there's an element of that, um, I do think, though, speaking to friends outside of the law, that perhaps there is a bit more of an awareness now of the difficulty, particularly for criminal practitioners. I think it is getting through that we do not earn the fat cat salaries that are advertised um, in some quarters of the media. You said, Monica, that you feel that morale is at an all-time low at the moment. Can you perceive yourself an impact upon recruitment to the criminal bar? I can because anybody who is going to embark on this type of career with all of the sacrifices um, that it asks for in terms of personal life, personal time, is not going to do that, I think, if they can't have some kind of assurance that they're going to earn a baseline amount of money. There are real concerns, and they've been expressed by a number of different people, about whether it is viable for people to sustain a career at the criminal bar um, and I think at the moment if things don't don't see any change in the next year or so it will inevitably impact on people being willing to actually start on the road to be a criminal barrister in the first place. So in some ways I'm glad that the message is getting through but on the other hand it's terrible to think of the loss of talent and particularly of people from different less privileged backgrounds who are perhaps being deterred from coming to to the criminal bar and the criminal bar must be representative of the the people that it serves absolutely trying to be optimistic there's always the scope for change we're not in a good position right now that isn't to say that a year down the line things won't have improved in in some respects so you know things by their nature change it's possible that that the government will uh, respond to some of the calls that have been made for, for necessary action quite quickly. What practical advice then would you offer for people who are really attracted by a career at the criminal bar but who are feeling quite anxious about what they understand are the, are the drawbacks? I would always advise people to do quite a few mini pupillages to just shadow a criminal barrister, get a sense of the daily reality of the job. Um, financially, you know, if you have the time, you'd want to get yourself into a position, if you can, where you have some financial safety blanket before you go down the road of this career. Not everybody has the luxury of deferring matters in that way, but um, there's a lot to be said, for example, for gaining work as a paralegal, gaining work in another um, line. Um, in order to then know for a fact that it is what you want to do. And do you think it's sensible, if you are doing a mini-pupillage, to ask the really personal questions about earnings and lifestyle? Or do you think it's best to save those for another opportunity? I think it is okay to ask. I wouldn't have a problem with somebody asking me. Obviously, you perhaps want to just check if somebody feels comfortable um, giving that information. Most barristers, I think, would be quite happy to be very honest and upfront about the realities of their professional life. I think the thing to bear in mind is that one person's story doesn't necessarily cover the full spectrum of experience. So 
I remember when I did one of my first mini pupillages, I was shadowing somebody who was clearly very disillusioned. He was extremely negative. A lot of what he said turned out to be right, um, but at the same time, it, it didn't really, in a sense, accurately represent the full experience of being a barrister. And so speak to a lot of different people is what I would say, and people at different levels of call and experience. What does life look like for a junior tenant, and particularly a junior tenant who's either in pupillage or fresh out of pupillage at a criminal set? It probably depends to some degree on the set you join. So each chambers has its own ethos, culture, different set of people. Um, Many chambers are becoming very astute to the difficulties for junior tenants, to how lonely the job can be now because so much work is done remotely. Uh, When I first began, you had to go in every afternoon to pick up your hard copy brief. Now the papers can get emailed to you, which is obviously very convenient, but it can lead to a certain detachment. So I think the experience will depend on the chambers that you're based at and how they treat junior tenants. Certainly my chambers um, makes quite a bit of effort to make sure that the juniors are cohesive, that they feel supported. Provided you have that in place, I think in many ways it can work well, but but the issues with pay uh, and um, the the stress of the job are obviously very much um, prevalent for people at the the start of their career. Yes, they're pretty universal no matter where you go. How did you cope with the stress of getting those instructions at 5pm before a trial the next day? Well, 5pm might be optimistic. Um, (laughs) Before before a trial the next day. I mean, that must be enormously stressful. How do you manage that? It it is, particularly early on, when it's not just a case of getting the brief at 5. It may be your first Crown Court trial for a robbery offence. So there's quite a lot that you're having to deal with. Um, Take a deep breath is the starting point. You know, the the reality is that you've got to look through the brief, make sure that you do have enough time to prepare for for the case. It is difficult. It becomes um, something that you learn to deal with over time. There is um, a satisfaction in being able to rise to that challenge. And it's part of how we, I think, as criminal practitioners build up the skill set that we have, which is the ability to be very flexible, to um, deal with things as on when they come flying at you and to analyse evidence, sometimes under time-pressured conditions. So one of the things I used to try and remind myself of in the early days when I found it stressful was this is all part of honing your craft. This is really what makes a good criminal barrister. Um, Not because in every case you'll get your trial brief the night before. It's not ideal. You know, as you get more and more senior, that will happen less and less. But it does allow you to develop quite an impressive skill set and a, a resilience that, that you need in this job. Do you, do you think that works? Do you think it, it definitely does enable people to develop those skills? Would they not have developed those skills if they got the brief, you know, three days previously? They probably would. And I'm not advocating that the sort of culture of, of briefs flying around at the last minute. I do think we have... Um, too much of it and whilst I accept that sometimes it's unavoidable for a case to be returned late in the day my view is that the default position should be that people get as much time as possible to prepare Mm -hmm. a trial 
given the importance of the task. But if you look forward to the trial itself, so many things can happen during a trial that you did not anticipate, that are unexpected, where you are having to think under time-pressured conditions, what's the appropriate thing to do here? So it is all part and parcel of the culture of, of criminal law, which is often having to respond relatively quickly to events as they unfold. So I do, I do think it helps in that sense. We spoke in the last series to Bernard Richmond QC, who talked about how he has been mixing his criminal practice with inquests. And one thing I'm certainly seeing more and more are criminal practitioners doing inquests, also doing things like disciplinary hearings that obviously have a big overlap with a criminal practice and where that kind of forensic cross-examination skill really comes in useful. But it also strikes me it must be incredibly difficult to manage a diary that is on the one hand operating in the sort of civil sphere of trials and hearings being listed quite far in advance and the criminal sphere of things being changed all the time and hearings going off and hearings running on and you simply having to turn up for court the next day. Is, is a criminal practice compatible with other areas of law? It's very difficult to combine with a different type of practice for, for the reasons that you've given. Um, you know, the warned list system, the fact that you can have a case and you don't know exactly which day that trial will begin. It could be any day during a two-week period. It can be very difficult to balance that with other commitments for hearings that are fixed for a specific date. Some people do manage to make it work, but I think it takes quite a bit in the way of organisation. Um, and I think one of those two areas of practice would, would have to take priority ultimately. I'm not sure it's possible to get a, a, a real balance between those two disciplines. The warned list system ha has come in for great criticism and really arguably only benefits the court because it's a way of ensuring that courts are not sitting around without any work to slot in for that day. But it, it certainly has a, a really um, stressful impact for, for defendants, for witnesses, and for the lawyers preparing the cases. Is that criticism likely to lead to any change, do you think? It's, it's certainly been, um, for a number of years, something that many at the criminal bar have asked to be reviewed. You know, is there really a benefit to the warned list system? Particularly when the court is asking for advocates to take ownership of cases, to do a huge amount of drafting, written work in advance of the trial. It's very difficult to ask that of criminal practitioners when you can't guarantee that they will in fact be the person who does the trial at the end. So, it may well be in a few years that we see the abolition of the warrantless system. I know I would certainly like to see that. Um, how realistic that is at the moment, I really don't know. What are the other realities of life at the criminal bar in terms of being able to maintain a social life, being able to um, carry out other responsibilities that you may have or may want to do? You can have a life outside of the bar, but, you know, it is difficult. And depending on what you're doing at any given point in time, there are some weeks where more demands are made of you from this job than others. Really, I think the healthiest way to deal with that is to just make sure that you have time between trials, if possible, that you mark out holiday time during the year, that you just set down the boundaries that you want um, to impose for your time over the course of the year. But it, it's not always easy to do that. The, the short answer is that 
you cannot really be a criminal barrister without understanding that that is going to encroach on your personal life from time to time, whether that's having to cancel at the last minute drinks with friends, whether it's having to, in some situations, cancel a holiday because your trial overran. Um, the more you do this job, though, the more you, I think, develop ways around that to try and make sure you can mark out time for yourself as well. And does that improve, would you say, over the course of sort of 10 years or so, your ability to exert some control and to feel confident that you can, for example, turn work down or say, right, well, I am not working during these three weeks? Definitely. Um, In the early years, you want to be seen to be willing. You want to take every opportunity that comes your way. You don't want to get a reputation for being difficult. So in the early years, you need to be prepared, perhaps, to sometimes take on cases, um, even when it may be uh, difficult or unattractive. But the the longer you do the job, the better your relationship um, with, with your clerks, the more loyal solicitors you have who instruct you Um, on a regular basis, the easier it is to start setting down the markers to say, well, I don't want to take this particular case on because I'm going to be away for those number of weeks or whatever. Presumably the more privately paying work you might get as well. Exactly. Um, Most chambers who do criminal work are trying, obviously, to branch out into more and more privately funded uh, work Um, And the more that you do that and the more of a balance you have between publicly funded and privately funded criminal cases, the easier that will be. I'm I'm very keen that we find sort of the silver linings for the criminal bar because the criminal bar is an amazing place to work. Is that silver lining that, yes, it's pretty awful for the first few years in practice, but there is light at the end of the tunnel as you become more senior? I can only speak from my own experience, but yes, I would say if I think of how difficult or or the difficulties I encountered early on. Things that bothered me then, things that affected me then, change as time goes on. You you build up confidence, you develop um, relationships and friendships with people in the job that make it a lot less lonely. Uh, You're able, as I've said, to, to set down boundaries a bit more clearly. So it is a job which, in my experience, gets better with time. A lot of the difficulty is in those early years. What do you think the future holds for the criminal bar? Are things going to get better in the next five years, ten years? My sense is that ten years from now, the criminal bar will probably look very different. Uh, I do think it's possible it will contract that we will simply have fewer chambers, uh, perhaps a more elite criminal bar. Um, that That is the risk if things go unchanged. I suspect that a decade from now, things will be very different, quite how we'll have to wait and see. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. One last question. Are you the secret barrister? Uh, not, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I were, but I'm not. (laughs) No, I wish it was me, but it's not. (laughs) No. (laughs) Oh, I wish. I really wish. (laughs) If only. Are you the secret barrister? No. (laughs) A likely story. (laughs) We're delighted to welcome the secret barrister to the Pupilage podcast. The Secret Barrister is a practising criminal barrister and author of the best-selling book Stories of the Law and How It's Broken, a first-hand account of the criminal justice system that is essential reading for all would-be barristers. 
to preserve his or her anonymity, we've invested in the most sophisticated vocal mask available at the bar. Karen Monaghan QC will today be the voice of the secret barrister. Karen Monaghan QC is a leading equality and discrimination barrister practising from Matrix Chambers. When interviewed by The Times for Lawyer of the Week in 2018, she said that the best decision she's taken as a lawyer was to be brave even when it might be more comfortable not to be. Advice which is close to our hearts on the Pupilage podcast. She has promised us that she really is not the secret barrister. Yes, Karen, welcome. So, secret barrister... We have been struck, as we've been making this podcast, by the willingness of people throughout the bar and the judiciary to talk to us, with one exception, the criminal bar and juniors in particular. Some of those we have approached have simply said no, others have said they didn't feel comfortable going on the record given their concerns. One expressed concern that if students knew how bad it really was, no one would apply to do crime. You, the secret barrister, have chosen to speak out anonymously. Why do you think there is this fear about speaking publicly about the criminal bar? I think that pupils and junior juniors are acutely conscious of how precarious their position is. As a new or prospective entrant to chambers, you don't want to be seen to be rocking the boat before your name's even dried above the door. And as with any profession, speaking candidly about problems invariably brings the risk of outing yourself as a troublemaker. So much of building a practice is reliant on goodwill. Clerks, senior members of chambers, instructing solicitors, Crown Prosecution Service that unless you're confident that you'll be supported in what you say, the safest course is to keep your head down. I've been open about one of those being the reasons for my writing anonymously. It's just that, the risk of professional reprisals from people, organisations irritated at what I've said, and the effect that might cause on my chambers or on my practice. It shouldn't be the case, of course. As self-employed and independent practitioners, we should be ideally placed to speak freely about the problems that we see. But as any barrister who's ever asked a clerk for a week off will attest, the nature of our industry brings with it a unique definition of autonomy. Many of our listeners will be right at the beginning of their legal careers and might not know or understand what the problems are at the criminal bar. Please could you explain them in a nutshell? (sighs) A nutshell's tough. A 300-page book I can do. A nutshell is harder. I think the most succinct way I can put it is this. Being a criminal barrister will always, even in an ideal world, be an extremely difficult job. You're dealing with the highest of stakes, people's lives and liberty hinge on your professional competence, and often the most distressing and disturbing of cases, working hours sometimes double those of your friends and family in regular employment, that's a given. But what's making it increasingly intolerable is the breakdown of the system we're expected to work in. Traumatised and damaged defendants... Witnesses brutalised further by court-listing practices that treat people as dots on spreadsheets, adjourning their trials three, four, five times on a whim because the government won't pay for the courtrooms to open. A chronically underfunded CPS with not enough staff to do the basics, meaning that I don't just have to send an advice in cases I prosecute, I have to chase every single day, unpaid, to get the basics done. Defence solicitors either going out of business or unable to devote their attention, the attention they should to cases due to the stack'em high, sell'em cheap model of funding legal aid that now prevails. Fewer cases are being charged due to pressures on the police, meaning there's less work to go around. It all creates an end of days feeling to practising law. 
Then there's the way barristers are treated, the pay, which can sometimes work out at below minimum wage, the way in which courts will routinely adjourn trials and refuse to take counsel's availability into accounts, meaning that the case you've spent weeks preparing goes unpaid, the culture, not unique to crime, but across the bar, of long antisocial hours is exacerbated by increased demands that we do additional work for free, reviewing boxes of disclosure, drafting applications because the CPS lawyer is too busy, being expected by a judge to draft a complex skeleton argument overnight, mid-trial, drafting defence statements because the solicitor knows you're too polite to point out that it's actually their job. More and more is piled on, eating away at what little non-work time we've left. As a consequence, there is a huge attrition rate among women practitioners, uh, junior practitioners generally, but women in particular. And how on earth can you have a functioning family life in this sort of environment? Is the situation different outside London? Outside London, things are a little better in some respects, Proportionately, there are fewer males to feed, so it's perhaps easier to get a foothold as a junior practitioner. Opportunities to appear in the Crown Court present themselves a little earlier, and while the rates of pay remain derisory, the money obviously goes a lot further once you're outside the capital. Travel's also a bit easier if you're on circuit, but the systemic problems are, I'm told, every bit as bad. We regularly speak to students, and when we report that criminal barristers are badly paid, we often feel that without cold, hard figures, they do not really believe us. But by any metric, criminal work is horrendously paid. You could literally make more money working in Starbucks. The 2019 revised protocol for the instruction and payment of counsel in magistrates' courts cases within the Greater London area, for example, allows for minimum fees for barristers of £50 for a first appearance, remand, bail applications, sending hearings and sentences and certain aborted hearings, increasing incrementally up to £150 for a full day's trial that runs. Now that includes all preparation, time, travel and expenses. So how does this work out in reality for junior practitioners? Badly. It's simply not possible to properly prepare a criminal trial at the rates on offer you're left with the choice of either doing it badly or doing it well and seeing your hourly rate dip below £3. What I will say, however, is that depending on your chambers, there should be opportunities to do other slightly better paying work. Prosecution lists are still paid at the same rate as in the 1990s, £200 a day, including all prep, which is low, but marginally more generous than defence fees. Chambers should supplement your income too with some low-paid private work like road traffic. And once you're in the Crown Court regularly, the fees do start to improve. But getting past those early months and years can be a real struggle, especially in London. That's why you see so many juniors either accepting secondments or quitting the bar altogether in those first five years. How quickly do juniors progress up to the Crown Court and is the position better there? How long does it take to turn a profit on which you could afford to live? It depends on your chambers and your location. As I've said, London's more competitive. You'll see far more junior faces in the robing room uh, in the average Crown Court, say, in the Midlands than you'll see in Southwark. The position payment-wise is better in the Crown Court, certainly. But years of cuts mean that the rates are still artificially low. 
Prosecuting a two-day burglary trial, for example, will pay £480 gross, which includes all preparation, deduct clerks' fees, chambers' rent, travel, insurance, etc., and work out your hourly rate, and that's still barely survivable. Before we turn back to the next question we asked the secret barrister, we did a little bit of maths just to see how it works out because it seems a real difference between £480 gross for two-day trial and £3 an hour, and we wanted to see how you can equate those two figures. So this is my appalling math, so forgive me <laughs> if I've got this wrong, but say you start off with £480 gross for a two-day trial. Then let's take off the tax at the beginning. I mean, actually, it would come later on, but you'd say you pay 20% tax on that. You're down to £384. Beatrice, what other expenses would come out of that? Okay, well, then we would probably have uh, chambers rent and clerks fees. So I think we should maybe knock off another 20%. So that brings us down to £307, about £307.20. And then travel, so if you imagine that you're based in London, the case is heard somewhere just outside London, so let's say Reading, somewhere not a million miles away from London, but of course remembering that if the hearing's in Manchester, you could be looking at £250 just for the train ticket. So a peak open return to Reading, you need to get there in time for court. Um, You're looking at about £49.20, so you're down to £258 in total. I think we've, we've got to remember then there are other expenses, such as insurance Westlaw, LexisNexis, other online uh, research tools, Um, other annual memberships, I don't know, memberships of professional associations. So let's just say £10 for that. Um, So that's, we're down now to £248. So that's for two days in court plus your prep. So let's say the prep takes you eight hours. That's reading the papers, liaising with the solicitor, drafting any documents that are necessary, prepping your cross-examination and closing. And I have to say, I think eight hours for a two-day hearing is pretty modest maybe it's quicker for crime but certainly I would not be spending any less than two days for a two-day hearing myself but let's say eight hours of preparation and then you've got the court time yes that's right um so court is arriving at nine to meet your client finishing at four thirty, and then having half an hour wash up with your client so that's another eight hours plus four hours travel And then, um, of course, there'll be some work overnight. So that's 30 hours in total. So dividing the £248 by 30, you get about £8.26 per hour. Which may not be paid for many months. If at all. Well, there you are. So, yeah, it's pretty horrifying. What is the reality of working for these sorts of rates? We've heard juniors say off the record that it's humiliating, demoralising, and they're too embarrassed to speak out about these issues. They've also had to work extremely long hours and often still live at home just trying to make ends meet. By way of example, this is something that we were told by an anonymous junior barrister. He or she said, We were sold something that's so far from the reality that it's laughable. We know about the long hours, papers not before 6pm, trains to far-flung villages, but few are talking about the incompatibility between case listing and childcare, the crumbling court system, the lack of trials due to police and CPS cuts, the hours we work for free only to find out the cases were not going ahead anyway, the lack of preparation done by solicitors and CPS staff, leaving barristers to pick up the slack, and often for free, clients with mental health issues, the fact that innocent people are being convicted... If this were only about the money, we'd complain, but we'd manage. I'd agree with all of that. Another complaint we have heard are chambers using junior barristers as loss leaders. 
Juniors are sometimes thrown in at a very low rate to ensure that a more senior barrister secures some more lucrative work. Or chambers won't chase their fees from solicitors who regularly instruct chambers, meaning that the juniors are not even receiving the sums they appear to be earning. Those who suffer this feel they cannot speak up and there is an attitude of, you're lucky to be here, you shouldn't complain. Is that something that you're familiar with, Secret Barrister? What can be done about it? It is something I think we've all encountered. As a pupil, I was sent on several freebies for solicitors who'd send well-paid Crown Court work to more senior members of Chambers. And my Chambers would happily accept instructions from solicitors who routinely delayed payments to junior tenants. There's definitely an expectation that at the bottom of the food chain, you don't complain. I think there's a duty on more senior juniors to clamp down on this where they see it and to raise it through the appropriate channels in Chambers. We shouldn't be leaving junior juniors to deal with these problems alone. It needs more than good governance within a chambers, though. If things are going to improve, the whole criminal bar has to resolve to change. As it is, there's a sort of prisoner's dilemma. Chambers fear that if they refuse to do freebies, the solicitors will simply find another chambers that will oblige. A worry is that the low remuneration will have an adverse impact on the recruitment to the criminal bar. Talented advocates will be put off, along with all those students who do not have an additional source of income to support them through the early years. Do you think that this is already happening? It's difficult to say with any certainty to what extent advocates are being put off from applying to crime. But what is irrefutable is the attrition rate once people get here. From the group of pupils I knew when starting out, most of the criminal pupils have either changed practice areas or left the bar altogether... And that seems to be a common trend nationwide. I have to say it's totally true amongst my, my year from law school. Right. There are very, very few left. The work of criminal barristers is often stressful and traumatic. Putting the long hours and poor pay aside, criminal barristers will routinely deal with cases of child sexual abuse, domestic violence, serious mental health problems, murder, rape and worse. What training and support do criminal barristers receive to help them cope with seeing these sorts of subjects day in, day out? None. One of the most masochistic aspects of the criminal bar is our historical refusal to acknowledge the trauma of the subject matter we deal with each day and a complete absence of training or meaningful support. As with jurors and judges, we're simply dropped into a world of torture, death and baby rapes and expected to stoically and unflinchingly adapt. That said, well-being is belatedly on the agenda, thanks to some brilliant work by members of the Criminal Bar Association, and this is an area in which we'll hopefully see improvement in the next few years. You must have to be incredibly resilient to survive at today's Criminal Bar. What other qualities do you think are essential for criminal barristers? A sense of humour and a sense of perspective. Humour, because if you don't find shards of light among the DARP and macabre, you wouldn't get out of bed to go to court. Perspective, because the demands and pressures can sometimes feel overwhelming and it's easy to forget that all you can do in this job is your best. You can't save people from each other, much less themselves. You can't guarantee verdicts to satisfy your clients. You can't fix a broken system or compensate for its inherent deficiencies. What's in your power is doing the very best with the tools you're given, being kind to those you serve and work with, and accepting that you will make mistakes and learning from them. Next, we've got a question from another guest on today's podcast, Sir Brian Levison, who we're going to hear from later in the episode. There are lots of questions that I would like to pose to the secret barrister. 
I would certainly like to ask him. Or her. Or her, <laughs> or her. For suggestions as to solutions which don't just involve money. Uh, I can take the financial problems, I understand them. Of course, it's not for me to get involved in uh, what are commercial negotiations between the Bar and the Law Society and the government. But I get it. But there are other things I have no doubt that uh, we could do which don't necessarily involve money. If the secret barrister has any ideas, I would be truly delighted to hear from him or her. What I do think is critical is that we move away from what are a series of criminal justice systems, the police who have their budget and their own priorities, the CPS with theirs, then the defence community and the courts, which don't entirely align. And I mm. believe that uh, the government have now understood that the system has to align. The system has to be seen as a complete entity. It can't carry on uh, in silos. So uh, ideas from a secret barrister would be extremely welcome. It's a fair question, although inherent is a polite criticism with which I'm familiar. You just want to spend more money. Well, yes, I do. In much the same way as you might say to a man who's been starving in the desert for three weeks, all you want to do is eat. Criminal justice is almost unique in its maltreatment by government over the last 15 years. It's been cut through the bone and the vast majority of the problems have at their root a maniacal belief that justice can be done for pennies with no ill effects. Of course, spending more money will not produce a perfect justice system. I've never pretended it will. There are efficiencies and they can and should be made, as Sir Brian Leveson's 2015 report rightly says. And we should never stop critiquing justice to see if it can be improved, nor challenging long-held assumptions about the way we do things. But I will not, I'm afraid, concede any ground on the desperate need to spend more money. The fallacy on which the Ministry of Justice operates is that you can cut justice funding by half in a decade and find some other way to get by. It's a, if you'll excuse me getting political, almost Brexit-like mode of magical thinking. It defies reality. You can't neglect the basics, police, prosecutors, courts, judges, legal aid, prisons, probation, and simply hope that there are alternative arrangements of having functioning justice that don't involve money. It can't be done any more than you can solve hunger by solutions that don't involve food. This is why underfunding is my focus. This barking mad narrative has to be challenged. The starving man has to be fed. But to respond directly to Sir Brian's question, there are a number of things I'd suggest that we can improve. Towards the top of the agenda would be court listing practices. Sir Brian himself remarked upon the iniquity, didn't use that word, of warned lists, whereby witnesses, defendants and lawyers are expected to block book weeks of their lives in a vague hope that their trial might be listed at some point. Likewise, floating trials adjourned repeatedly for lack of time. These anachronisms should be a thing of the past. The rule should be simple. 
If a trial doesn't go ahead on the first listing for lack of court time, the next listing must be a fixture. The court will just have to accommodate it. To treat witnesses and defendants in the way we currently do as playthings of the court to be messed around to please statisticians and listing officers corrodes faith in the system. I'd remodel the role of Lord Chancellor as an independent, apolitical appointment, similar to the Director of Public Prosecutions, imbued with statutory responsibility to uphold the rule of law, defend the independence of the judiciary, and ensure adequate provision of resources for the justice system. Many of the problems we see in justice have been caused by underqualified, fly-by-night careerists and opportunists using the dual role of Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor as a stepping stone to a cabinet role and completely ignoring their oath as Lord Chancellor, making the role independent of government and a constitutional counterweight to the political machinations of the Ministry of Justice would ensure that our first principles are properly defended and not subjugated to the vagaries of partisan politics. Secret Barrister, what do you think is the future for the criminal bar? I don't know. I have hope that it will survive. People have been predicting the demise of the criminal bar for decades, but we're the cockroaches in the bunker. There'll always be crime, and there will, barring a radical reimagining of our adversarial system, always be a need for specialist defence and prosecution advocates. I used to think that fusion of the professions was inevitable, that as the Jeffreys Review predicted, junior advocates would mainly practice in-house, with the independent criminal bar holding only a handful of the most experienced advocates. But the longer I'm able to cling on, the more I hope that, despite all the uncertainty, we'll find a way to survive. What advice would you give to anyone considering a career at the criminal bar? Do it. Make sure you are aware of the reality. Speak to juniors and pupils in your chosen city and ask them awkward personal questions about their earnings, their work-life balance and their general happiness. But if you're happy to put up with the rain, go and chase Dolly Parton's rainbow. <laughs> oh, and make sure you consider practising out of London. You'll have a much better chance of surviving the early years if you're not paying a London premium on every aspect of your existence. Is there anything encouraging you would like to finish on? Yes. There's a reason why, despite all its very real problems, so many of us are still here. Actually, there are two. The first is because some of us, and I include myself, have literally nothing else we can do. But secondly, more importantly, it's because it's an absolutely incredible job. It's thrilling and infuriating and frustrating and depressing and heartbreaking and hysterically funny, and no day is ever dull. You'll be working with some of the most brilliant people you could ever hope to meet. You'll accrue stories to make dinner parties fall into stunned awkward silence and you'll never ever be clock watching the lows are dreadful but the highs the devastating cross-examination the improbable acquittal are incomparable a job which is fun fascinating and carries a weight of civic responsibility is rare for all my harping i really do consider it a privilege Karen, thank you so much for coming on the Pupillage podcast to be the voice of the secret barrister. Not at all. Thank you very much. I very much enjoyed Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Thank you. One final question before we let you go. We've just got to check. You're not the secret barrister, are you? 
No, I'm not the secret barrister. <laughs> Thank you. I might not tell you if I were. <laughs> but that's also, we have to consider the double bluffers as well. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I've never been asked that before. <laughs> I am not the secret barrister. <laughs> Are you the secret barrister? No. Oh, there was such a long pause there. I thought we'd finally unmasked her. <laughs> Sarah Langford is a barrister practising crime and family law at Three Paper Buildings and the author of the brilliant best-selling In Your Defence. It has already been snapped up by Working Title for a TV adaptation and it's easy to see why. The book takes the reader into the criminal and family courts by following a series of 11 cases, all based on truth but often composite stories to protect anonymity. It really brings to life the reality of the bar, from the early morning train journeys and late nights in chambers, the innocent clients to those you look at and think, this man could kill me, from holding court at dinner parties with the best anecdotes to the human costs of exactly those stories. It is a must-read for anyone considering becoming a barrister, and everyone else for that matter. Sarah, we're delighted you could join us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Sarah, it seems to me that family and crime are two of the toughest areas you could choose to practice. What drew you to them? A combination of requirements, I think. I knew from having done various office-based jobs, secretarial work and so on, that I couldn't sit behind a desk all day. I just wasn't suited to it. And when I thought about what the law meant to me, it was, I'm afraid, the drama side of it it was the being in a courtroom doing the advocacy in a wig and gown and that was the part I found the most exciting so we're particularly interested today in your criminal practice and we have heard lots of horror stories as I'm sure you have and as I'm sure some of our listeners will have done about life at the criminal bar is it as bad at the coalface as people say Like all very consuming jobs, I think it throws you enough bones to keep you going. Uh, And that tends to be in the camaraderie of the people that are doing it and the satisfaction from some of the cases that you're doing. But it is very grinding. It's grinding in an emotional way and it's grinding in a physical way because you are, as I just said, not behind a desk all day. You're on your feet and moving around from cell to court to cell to court and uh, to the train station and back from the train station. And that's a lot of that I wanted to get across in the book because I think when people who have never necessarily been into a courtroom see the law on TV, screen or books they go right in for the glamorous bit in court and it's always bookended by late nights early mornings and a lot of slog either side it is it's a really tough job and it isn't compatible with lots of other things which some people want in their life like small children The criminal court system is incredibly unpredictable. It's really chaotic in a way that I think the majority of people who have never stepped foot in one, when they do, they are appalled, gobsmacked (laughs) by how it can work. Very frequently, you'll turn up to a criminal trial and they won't have a courtroom. They won't have a judge. The witness hasn't turned up. 
the police, uh, the prison officers can't get the defendant in the van, so he's not here. Or you have, as you know, warned trials, which all barristers accept as a matter of course. If you explain a warned trial to anyone outside of the law, they think you're completely crazy. You say, so there might be a trial, it will go on for five days, it might take place on any day in a three-week period, you'll know about it the day before, or it might not happen at all. But you can't do any other work during that time because you'll lose your trial. And no, you don't get paid for the days where you're waiting for that trial to come on. And if it doesn't come on, it will just get adjourned off for another eight months. It is the constant unpredictability and the chaos within the criminal system that means that you can never say, I will be home at five o'clock to take over. Or... I will drop you off at school tomorrow because I need to be at court by nine. Because if you suddenly get sent to Bristol and the papers arrive at 4.30 the night before, then you need to leave a lot earlier than that. And the other side of it is the financial side of it. Because you could probably get around that if you were being remunerated sufficiently to have full-time flexible childcare. But when you're basically breaking even if that, it makes very little sense. Uh, Certainly when I looked between my two children who are now turned four, when I looked at going back and I did the sums on it and I thought, well, you know, at the time my husband's job meant that he also had a very unpredictable schedule, had to work on weekends like all criminal viruses do, had to work in the evenings like all criminal viruses do too. You, You couldn't have two people leading that kind of lifestyle. So you had to either pay someone to do it, and that only made sense if you were going to earn more than them, which you weren't going to at the criminal bar. Uh, The Western Circuit produced a report not that long ago looking at all the women who had left the bar in the last six years on circuit, which was my circuit, the Western Circuit is my circuit, and they found that of all of the criminal barristers who had left the Western Circuit in the last six years, two-thirds were women. All of the men who had left retired or became judges. And the vast majority of the women who left, left mid-career. It's a very difficult area of law to balance with small children because of the demands that it places on you for the need to be totally flexible at any given moment and to do it on a shoestring. One of the other things that we have heard from female practitioners of crime that we've spoken to is about gendered allocation of work. Is that something that you are familiar with that you have seen? I'm not asking about your personal practice, but across the criminal bar. It was always a bit of an insider joke. Uh, I remember a colleague who was probably about 10, 15 years senior to me coming into the robing room and throwing her wig off and go, oh, I just don't do any cases that haven't got a penis in it at the moment. (laughs) Because she would do back-to-back sex work. And there was a common understanding, a sort of recognition um, that was largely unchallenged, I think, because people were afraid, women were afraid to jeopardise their practices by doing so, that it was more palatable to have a woman asking questions about sex in a courtroom than a middle-aged man of a female complainant. Yeah. The reality is that cases involving sexual assaults are not nearly as well paid as fraud. 
Chris Henley has said that he has done back-to-back fraud cases where he has seen no women. Chris Henley is, is the current chairman of the Criminal Bar Association, is that right? Yes, and this is quite a kind of, it's a deep cultural consequence in the same way that there's this hangover that some people are good at maths and some people are good at art. Yes. It's going to, it's going to take a lot to shift that because that's more societal. But I think that the first step in it is recognising it and being open about it. Uh, because I think a lot of this is unconscious bias. I don't necessarily think that clerks and solicitors do this deliberately. It's just how the system has evolved. But like all systems, unless you challenge the status quo, nothing is going to change. But of course, that has a massive impact on women's incomes. So for those listening, thinking, gosh, I, you know, I'm, I'm so drawn to the criminal bar, but... How am I ever going to afford this? And particularly for those who are either women who are interested in having families or caregivers or men who are interested in having paternity leave or parental leave. Is it so fair to try and summarise some of the silver linings or the, the ways through like this that you can, first of all, you can take a long period of parental leave or a career break. You can subsidise your practice by doing something else alongside it, such as family law or inquests or perhaps big public inquiries, that sort of work. And there is a glimmer of hope, I think, as things are sort of starting to get through to the government, that there is going to be um, perhaps some improvement in fees in the not-too-distant future. And, of course, the other thing is that the pay for junior barristers does increase over the years. So the more years you are in practice, the more you are likely to be paid. You'll be doing bigger cases that are more complex and will be earning more money. So the really horrific period of time is fairly time limited. You're not going to be on those horrifying figures forever. If you stay at the bar. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is the opportunity to find your niche within it. Yeah. Whatever area that may be. Is there anything else that I've I've missed? I think that's a, I think it's a very fair summary. I wouldn't want to say to people who want to wanted to do this in a way that I wanted to do it when I was in my 20s I wouldn't want to say to them not to I just would like to urge them to go in with their eyes wide open and to figure out a way of managing it themselves which I did so it's a really satisfying rewarding wonderful career Thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. It would be very irresponsible of me to put off somebody who wanted to go to the criminal bar, having enjoyed it so much as a profession myself and having loved it. Are you the secret barrister? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not the secret barrister. You are now a published author and you were a criminal barrister. It seems to me you've got all of the ingredients to be the secret barrister. <laughs> Are you, in fact, the secret barrister? I am not the secret barrister. <laughs> Are you the secret barrister? I am not the secret barrister, but I know who it is. <gasps> do you really? I do. <gasps> okay, next question. Just one last question. Can you tell us, who's the secret barrister? Oh, I could not. I have been sworn to secrecy. <laughs> Until June this year, our next guest was the President of the Queen's Bench Division of the High Court and Head of Criminal Justice. He's also the Deputy Treasurer of Middle Temple. 
He is perhaps one of the best-known judges in England and Wales as a result of chairing the public inquiry into the culture, practices and ethics of the British press, the eponymous Leveson Inquiry. But what many listeners might not know is that before reaching the upper echelons of the judiciary, Sir Brian Leveson was a criminal barrister practising in Liverpool who appeared in such high-profile prosecutions as that of Rosemary West and Ken Dodd. Master Leveson, thank you very much for joining us on the Pupilage podcast. You're very welcome. So, Master Leveson, when I started at law school, people were talking about the collapse of the criminal bar. And 15 years later, things don't seem to have moved on much further. And I wondered whether those discussions were happening at the time that you started out. When I started at the criminal bar in 1970, uh, the problem was, was there any work? And certainly I expected to have to spend some years waiting for returns before getting a chance to go into court. Uh, The result was that I took part-time employment as a lecturer. In fact, the big change came in 1974 with the Legal Aid Act, and there is no doubt that there then followed 25 really golden years for those practising in crime, with legal aid available uh, readily and fees taxed by the court clerk, depending on the nature of the work. So I don't think that in the 70s and 80s there were the worries that there are today, uh, which I recognise and which concern me greatly. What were the features of your criminal practice that you found to be most rewarding? It's a fascinating life, and everybody has a fascinating but different life. The great privilege, particularly in the criminal field, is to be involved in real-life human dramas. So if you go into a criminal court, whether you're prosecuting, defending, or indeed trying the case, you are privileged to see people who have had a whole myriad of issues come and face them, who have had to confront uh, problems which they had no real comprehension of, which they barely understand whether they are victims or witnesses or defendants. And the tremendous privilege of practising at the bar has been to try and understand, from the perspective of the case you are conducting, what has been going on in these people's lives and how best to test what is alleged against you or what you are alleging um, against your experience or common experience of life to try and help people through the process, hopefully to get to the other end, uh, all in one piece. It is beyond doubt that whether as a, a victim, a witness or a defendant, going to court is not a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. It is life-affecting. And the barrister has the opportunity really to understand human behaviour and to try and tap into the 
facts of the case in such a way as advance the argument that your client would have advanced had they had your legal experience and practice. I think that is an enormous privilege. And I found it from the very start going to the magistrate's court, defending somebody. My first trial was um, being found on enclosed premises by night. And I was defending a man uh, who said that he jumped into this schoolyard because he had the urge to urinate. And I thought that was perfectly reasonable. (laughs) And uh, I sought to persuade the bench who were having none of it. And they convicted my client and they fined him £25. I was very upset that I'd been unable to persuade the court of the merits of my client's case. He was delighted because he was only fined £25. (laughs) And so you learn what um, affects different people. And that from that day on through to the most serious murder. You mentioned uh, West, one of the most difficult sets of conversations that I've had were with the parents of the victims of Rosemary West, who, who's, who'd fallen out with their child years before and didn't know why and hoped that they'd had a happy, successful life and then found out that what had happened was worse than their very worst nightmare. Being able to explain what you were doing, why things were as they were, and how you were trying to present the position, uh, but what may not work, was difficult, uh, very challenging, but very important to them. So, do I encourage people to come into crime? Absolutely. I have not regretted a single minute of it. But I recognise that I've been very fortunate. What warnings or advice would you give to somebody who's thinking about a criminal career? Well, the advice I would give, first of all, would be to go for it. Uh, There has been a heat map prepared by the Law Society which reveals that the age of those practicing in crime as solicitors is increasing and getting older and older. And I know that the Bar Council have done some work and found that very few chambers are admitting criminal tenants because of the difficulties they face. But actually, the criminal law is essential to our democracy. Uh, The criminal justice system is an essential part of our civilised society. And we need young barristers to develop skills and to become senior barristers and then judges who are capable of trying our most difficult trials. And those who say, well, do you know, I'm very concerned about the amount of money I'll earn, I say this, I'm not suggesting that you wouldn't do far better becoming a tenant in a commercial set. But I would ask you to compare being the fourth junior in some mega case piling through the discovery, then the third junior, then the second junior, then the junior, and then even in silk, without having the day-to-day experience of interacting with witnesses 
And indeed, when I moved to London in 1993, and you're right that until then I practiced entirely on the Northern Circuit, um, one of the reasons that I was encouraged to move was because I had a very broad practice and could do commercial work, but also knew how to cross-examine people. And that's a skill which it is absolutely critical that the bar retain and develop. And there is no better area of law in which to practice it than crime. Yeah. Except you do get rather fed up being asked, how do you defend people you know are guilty? Yes. <laughs> when, of course, you don't know any such thing. And I used to say to clients, you know, I wish I was floating 20 feet above where my clients were supposed to be doing things. But I wasn't. And I don't know. That normally presaged an encouragement to think about whether they really wanted to fight the trial. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned just a minute ago when you were describing a vision of the commercial bar, you mentioned discovery, Master Leveson. And of course, the last 20 years has seen huge changes in the way that we communicate, in the way that we record material and so on, with the consequence that the unused material in a Crown Court case, for example, will be sort of not several boxes really, but several terabytes of a material and this creates huge pressures on criminal barristers can people who are thinking about joining the bar now many of whom will have grown up with smartphones and tablets be confident that the criminal justice system is going to move with the times and and, and is adapting to the 21st century not only is it it has to there is no choice so uh i'm afraid i grew up with uh uh, as the photocopy was just starting and my briefs as a young junior could be folded over lengthwise and tied together with a little piece of pink tape, uh, yes. by the end, uh, it was how many boxes of lever arch files it came in. So that was a development of my practice rather than digital data and also the curse of the photocopier. But... The fact is that we are adjusting to the digital world. If you practice in crime, you will know that now everything is on a digital case system. You don't get a, a great lever-arch file of statements. They're all on, on the digital case system. And everybody has got used to working on that. Uh, we no longer have the problems that the CD doesn't fit into the kit that's in court click share works in the crown court uh, we are also seeking to address the incredibly difficult problems of uh, unused material and downloads and we have to find ways of being able to extract from the terabytes of data that which is truly relevant unused material because otherwise the system will simply collapse. I have no doubt that artificial intelligence, AI, research mechanisms and tools have a great part to play in it. I actually think that the next generation of criminal barristers are much, much better adapted to life at the criminal bar today than I am. But then I've not got long to go. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for joining us on the Pupilage Podcast, Master Levson. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pupilage Podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe. 
brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. I was given great advice. Having come from a background where there were no legal connections, where my mum was a primary school teacher and my dad was a land agent, neither of them went to university. It was one woman in particular who gave me sound advice. She was the first person in her family to go to university. She's just been made a QC. And she said, if you really want to do it, you'll find a way to do it.